You have been listening to sermon audio from Day 3 Church. We invite you to join us for one of our worship services. For more information, visit day3church.com. On my to-do list for Monday is find a microphone that works for the preaching time. Um, so, uh, good morning, guys. Um, glad glad to be up here again. It's um, you know I, I I was thinking this morning this is um, the second time I've been up here uh, to preach, and uh, the first time I've been up here actually as one of your staff members, and um, I'm very happy to be here with you guys at day three. I know that the Lord um, brought us here and brought us together, um, and I believe He's got good things in store for this church and um, and for this community. Um, today, we're, we're concluding our series on worship, and we're talking about authentic worship. Uh, today, we're talking about the atmosphere of worship. And, you know, in preparation, I have to confess to you, in preparation for this message, I, I spent a lot of time studying... Um, a lot of different stuff, but the the main the main thing that I couldn't get out of my mind um, in the past few weeks is how the tabernacle was was the model of of worship that God originally gave to His people uh, when when the Hebrews were wandering in the wilderness and He instructed Moses and gave him very specific commands about um, uh, the uh, construction of the tabernacle and and uh, the way that worship was to be done and I I think that. Uh, you know, if you read in, well, let me back up. If you read in Hebrews, uh, Hebrews actually says that the tabernacle um, was, was a model built by human hands, but it was a representation or a shadow of the true temple uh, that is in heaven. And so when we think about worship uh, or, or when we think about heaven, we don't usually think about the temple or the tabernacle model, but we really should. And um, as I was going through the message last night, I realized that if I actually talk to you about all the things from the tabernacle that are, that are important and, and that would benefit uh, our discussion today of the atmosphere of worship, the reality is I'd have about three sermons before I actually get to the points in your bulletin. So uh, <laughs> I'm going to skip through some slides this morning, and I'm just going to kind of give you a little overview of the tabernacle real quick. But um, uh, let's go ahead and put that, that slide up. There's, there's several spaces in the tabernacle uh, that uh, um, kind of give us a, a, a process or an order in worship, a flow of things. And I want to just kind of give you a brief overview of the tabernacle. First, there was the camp. Now, um, and, and the camp was outside of the tabernacle. It wasn't really part of the tabernacle, but, it, but it, it, it's significant in our discussion. Um, the camp uh, was, of course, uh, all, where all the Israelite tribes were gathered. Uh, where they lived, they lived in community around the tabernacle. The tabernacle sat at the center of of their camp. Now, then there was the gate. The gate was the entrance into the tabernacle. And when you went in, there was something called the outer courts. And then there was another tent inside the tabernacle. And uh, the first place you went into in that tent was called the holy place. Um, and then inside the holy place, there was another doorway into another chamber, another room. Um, that was called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. And sometimes you'll hear the Holy Place referred to as the inner court. Uh, so the outer court, the inner court, or the Holy Place. And then the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place, sometimes referred to in Scripture. So those are the different spaces of the tabernacle. Um, let's take a look at that next picture, guys. 
All right, so this is a picture of the camp, and if you've been in Pastor Lynn's office, you've probably seen something like this, but uh, here's a picture of, of the camp uh, around the tabernacle with the tabernacle in the center. All right, you see the column of fire that's there? That represents the presence of God. The Bible tells us that, that, um, the, uh, that the Lord appeared to the Israelites in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Um, the, in the daytime, uh, they could see the cloud, they could see the smoke, and they followed it. Whenever the cloud moved, the Israelites moved. When they were wandering in the wilderness, they, where, wherever they were supposed to go next, they followed the cloud. Um, and then the fire uh, at night. Now, why cloud by day and fire by night? Well, during the day, you can see the smoke in the air, right? At nighttime, you can see the flames in the air. All right, so, um, but this is the presence of God dwelling among them. Now, listen, think about this for just a minute. Uh, this is an aside. It's not in the notes, but um, if, if you were encamped around that and you saw this thing moving around and said, oh, okay, now it's time for us to move, um, it makes me wonder sometimes why the Israelites had trouble trusting God. I mean, seriously, seriously. You think about all the miracles they saw, the parting of the Red Sea and the, the manna from heaven and, and the water from a rock and all the different things. And, the, and this thing leading them, and they, and, they had, and they doubted God's presence. They doubted his goodness. They doubted his, his grace and his care for them. And, and I think about it like that. I think, you know, with the physical manifestations, how did they doubt it? And then I realized, you know, we... You know, we've got all kinds of good things in our lives, too, that the Lord's done for us. And we still struggle with doubt. So we can't be too quick to judge. But I just, I don't know, I find it fascinating that they struggled like that with, with his presence there. Um, but he, there's a picture of the tabernacle. And um, so uh, let's hit the next slide. What I want you to see is this. Look at, look at this. This is their camp. This is their camp. When they camped around, they had specific instructions. There were four camps, one on each side, and there were three tribes in each camp, and some of the tribes were larger than others. The, the tribe to the uh, north and the south, this is actually turned on its side. The tribe to the north and the south, south would be this way over here. North would be this way if you want to take a look at, if you want to understand the map uh, there. But uh, the south and the north sides were, were basically even in number, just a few hundred difference. But the, but the east and the west were significantly different in number. And so when they camped in the order that they were supposed to camp, and you look down from above, what did it look like? A cross. God, in the very beginning, remember in Genesis? Remember in Genesis, the, 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 the fall of man, and, and God said um, to the serpent that he was going to crawl around on his belly in the dust. He was cursed because of what happened. And he said... Um, about about the 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 offspring of Eve, said you will um, he will crush your head, you will bruise his heel, and we and we hear about the discussion. If you probably, I'm sure Pastor Lynn's probably mentioned it before. The discussion, the prophecy uh, of Christ that's in that. And from the very beginning, God had a plan, and He laid it out for them in the tabernacle. They didn't see it. They didn't see it. But I'm gonna show you some other stuff too. Um, Let's take a look at the map of the tabernacle. Oh, okay, here's the, here's the gate. This is the gate into the outer courts. Let me tell you, every part of the tabernacle represents something, some element of worship. And so um, I, I won't give you all of them, but, but the gate, there's a verse in Psalm uh, 100, verse 4. It says, uh, I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. I will enter his courts with praise. So the gate represents thanksgiving. The court represents praise. The, the, um, the entrance into the uh, tabernacle 
uh, tradition tells us the entrance was called the way. The way. Keep that in mind. Okay? So let's take a look at the next slide. All right, here is a picture of the tabernacle laid out. So the purple line there is the gate, the entrance in. You come into the outer court. The outer court is where the people of God would gather to worship to sing songs, to praise, to play instruments. There was a lot of music. Um, and, and then also there were these articles of furniture there, and they were actually quite large. The first one there is altar of burnt offerings or the brazen altar, depending on what translation you're reading or, or the wording of it. But um, this was the altar where the sacrifices were made. And the priests were instructed to wear white robes, and uh, they were working with the sacrifices all the time. And so if you can imagine wearing white and, uh, and, and slaughtering am- animals, right? Probably look a lot like a butcher uh, in a butcher shop. Um, and, and then also they're around the smoke constantly from the fires. Now listen, guys, the, the, the altar was for the sacrifices. The sacrifices were for sin, and that is a picture of what? Fire, smoke, sin. It's a picture of hell. It's a picture of hell. It's a picture of the penalty of sin. It's a picture of the sacrifice that Christ made for us, took our punishment so that we didn't have to go to hell. Okay? Now, the sacrifices that were made, they didn't, they didn't cleanse sin. They didn't, they didn't uh, do away with sin. They covered sin. They were a foreshadowing of the sacrifice that Christ, Christ was going to make for us. The, the sacrifice, the, 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 holy, the perfect Lamb of God, the Lamb without blemish. All right, so there's the, the altar, um, the brazen altar, the burnt, uh, burnt offerings altar. And then next is the, uh, the laver, or the golden laver, or the brazen laver, depending on what you read. Um, and laver is a big wash basin. It's basically a giant bird bath. It's, uh, it's, got, it's got metal on it. It was reflective. The, the Bible says that they made it out of the, the women uh, gave their, their mirrors. And the mirrors in that time, of course, weren't glass. They were usually bronze or brass or something like that. But it was reflective, and, uh, and they melted it down, and they, and they used it to, to make this labor. And what happens is the priest would go to wash before he goes into the holy place because he had to be clean to go into the holy place. All right, so this is a picture of... What God, what Christ does for us, His sacrifice washed our sins away. All right, and um, then you go into the entrance. Now, the entrance into the holy place was, according to tradition, was called the truth. The truth. When you enter into the holy place, you enter to, into the truth of God. The holy place uh, represents ministry or service. Um, this was a place where the priests uh, took care of their priestly duties. Um, and they and they they ministered before the Lord, and uh, there are three articles of furniture within the holy place. One of them is the lampstand. There's a seven standing, uh, seven lamp menorah or seven candlestick menorah right there. You've probably seen a menorah, the Hanukkah stuff. That's usually an, I think an eight candle menorah. This is a seven candle lampstand. It provided light in the room, but this this uh, this lampstand, uh, it. It actually um, represents divine direction or divine light. What, the, what does the Bible tell us in the New Testament? Who's the light of the world? Jesus, okay? Um, then also across from that, uh, that article right there, it's got the two circles on it. This is a table of showbread. There's a picture of the table of showbread in there if you'll pull that up. Table of showbread. What does that look like to you guys? Look familiar? Looks like the Lord's Supper table. Um, I, I, I'm pretty sure, if I remember correctly, that's actually oil on the table there. 
to, to, to put on the bread. They were supposed to keep 12 loaves of bread on the table of showbread or the bread of the presence is how it's referred sometimes, um, and depending on the translation again. The, um, they were to keep that bread uh, there for so many days, and then it had to be replaced uh, with fresh bread. And so the priests actually consumed this bread in the holy place. Um, now, the bread and the oil, think about the oil for a minute. The oil, what do they do with oil? They anoint people, right? What, rep, what does oil represent for us? Anointing with oil represents what in the New Testament? The anointing with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. And then the bread. Um, the bread, this is, the, this is spiritual nourishment is what this represents. Spiritual nourishment. Um, the teaching of the Word of God would be an example. So for us, in a worship setting, the teaching of the Word of God is very important. It's an, it's a, it's an integral part of worship. Um, all right, let's take a look at that map again of the, uh, the tabernacle. And then uh, go back. Back, back. There you go. Um, the, uh, the next article is the altar of incense. Now, the altar of incense stood in front of the, the opening to the, to the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. And uh, they were to, the priest was to go and offer um, incense to the Lord, burn incense before the Lord twice a day, every day. And then there were other times as well, but, but it was supposed to be done twice a day. And the incense represented the prayers of the people. The priest carried the prayers of the people before God the Father, day and night. Okay? Um, in Hebrews, in Hebrews it tells us that who's our high priest? Jesus. And it says that he sits at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us, praying on our behalf. So here's a picture of Jesus Christ right here when the priest offers up the prayers to the Lord. All right? So prayer is an aspect of worship. The teaching of the Word is an aspect of worship. The, the light of Scripture or the guiding truth of God's Word, the truth entering into the holy place, a picture. The washing and cleansing of, of um, uh, uh, confession and, and, and repentance. Uh, the sacrifice for sin and the courts of praise, every bit of that. And then we get to this, the, this last section, the Holy of Holies. And, and the entrance into the Holy of Holies was, is referred to as the veil. If you read in Scripture in the New Testament, it talks about when Christ was crucified, that the veil of the temple was torn from the top to the bottom. That is the same veil, except this is the tabernacle that we're looking at, and they're talking about the temple when it was a permanent structure. Um, but uh, this is the veil. The, the veil, uh, according, to tradi- according to tradition, the veil was referred to as the life. Because what's on the other side of the veil? God himself. Okay? The life. The one who gives life. The source of life. Um, the one who created everything. And this holy of holies, this room, the holy of holies, represented the presence of God among his people. All right? We already saw that his presence came down in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire um, and rested over the holy of holies. In the holy of holies, there was a piece of furniture. It was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant represents the promise of God to His people. On top of the Ark was something called the Mercy Seat with angels and their wings stretched out uh, over the top of the Mercy Seat. The Mercy Seat represented uh, God's um, redemption because it was at the Mercy Seat that, um, that reconciliation happened between God and man where the blood of the sacrifices was offered so that on the Day of Atonement when God looked down to judge the people, He saw the sin and, and, and I mean, he saw the blood, and sin was atoned for. Uh, so 
that represents our reconciliation to Christ. What does Hebrews say? Well, let's come boldly before the throne of mercy and receive grace in our time of need. It's a direct correlation to this right here. All right, in the Ark of the Covenant, there were three items. The Ten Commandments on stone tablets, the Word of God, okay? There was a bowl of manna, which was a representation, a reminder of the promise that God made to them, or the, excuse me, the provision that God made for them. Uh, he provided for all their needs. Uh, Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And then the rod of Aaron. The rod of Aaron was the sign of the priesthood. It was the proof of God's anointing and God's calling and God's authority on the life, lives of people. It was also representative of new life because it was a, it was a rod, a staff, that um, you know, God showed them who the priest should be by taking the, the elders or the leaders of the tribes and having them put their staves in a, in a tent overnight. And then, and then the one that blossomed and bloomed was uh, God um, saying to them, this is, this is the one who I have called as your high priest. Now, now think about that. There, this is a dead piece of wood, a stick. And what happened to it? It came to life. And so here you have the budded rod of Aaron inside this Ark of the Covenant. All right, um, so what's the point of all this stuff? Guys, every element of this represents Christ in some way. Christ gives us new life. He's the bread from heaven. He's the one who made propitiation for our sin. If you actually look at that verse in, in uh, 1 John, I think it is, that, that's actually the same word that's used in Hebrews for mercy seat. So in other words, Christ was our mercy seat. All right, this is representation of Christ. Let's look at that next uh, picture um, if next one, uh, right here, if you look at the layout of all the articles of furniture from the gate into the tabernacle to the gate, the veil into the most holy place, and look at the arrangement of the furniture, it's in the shape of a cross. Not only that, but it goes from the gate, the way, into the holy place through the entrance called the truth to the veil which is called the life. And Jesus said, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God the Father except through me. Except through me. So this is the tabernacle, the picture of Christ in front of his people. All right. Uh, so let's talk about what, what, what that means for us. Uh, and now, that, now that I've kind of given you a picture of what the tabernacle looks like, um, let's talk about what that means for us in terms of atmosphere of worship. Um, you know, the tabernacle is a model for our corporate worship today with Jesus as the fulfillment of the law and the centerpiece of our worship. And if that's the case, then how should we worship today? Do we do it with white robes and uh, golden furniture? Do we do it with liturgy and ritual and um, formality? What's the correct way to worship? It seems to be a real, a real hot topic in the past couple decades among Christians. What's the correct way to worship? And, and we've experienced these things referred to as the worship wars, where, where people argue over traditional versus contemporary and um, liturgical versus, uh, you know, free-flowing or whatever the case may be. And um, so, so what, what's correct? Is it loud rock music and coffee and um, no rules? You know, you don't have to wear anything in particular. You can do whatever, you know, that kind of stuff. 
what I think that's kind of how people view um, the contemporary church oftentimes, uh, churches like us. Um, so what's a biblically a sound approach for worship? Uh, here's what I want to share with you this morning. We're going to talk about the atmosphere of corporate worship with respect to what we understand about what the tabernacle teaches. It take us, takes us from the outside into the very presence of God. It goes through the courts of praise. It goes through the truth and enters us into the place of life. It's a very important concept because that is the atmosphere that we should have in our worship. So what does that mean for us? Let's look at point number one. Point number one is that we need to be inviting to others. Now, you're probably thinking, well, John, how do you get that from what you just shared with us about the tabernacle? Well, I don't necessarily get it from the tabernacle, but I get it from the Scripture, um, this idea of hospitality in our worship. It's expressed in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you'll um, uh, look at your next uh, sub-point there, um, the way we invite others, number one, is by welcoming them. Uh, Here's what uh, Hebrews 13, verse 2 says. It says, uh, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Don't neglect to show hospitality. The statement was made by the writer of Hebrews with regard to their corporate worship services. And uh, he says to them uh, to, to continue to practice brotherly love, and he says to them to make sure that they minister to those who are in prison, and by all means, make sure you show hospitality to the guests who are in your presence. Okay, so the first thing we have to do is welcome them. The second thing that the Scripture encourages us to do is to involve them. Involve them. Look at the Old Testament. We're going to look at the passage, Numbers uh, 15, verse 14. Numbers 15, verse 14, which says, And if a stranger is sojourning with you, or anyone is living permanently among you, and he wishes to offer a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord, he shall do as you do. Now, I thought that was interesting when I looked at that because an, an alien, um, before you say we're teaching some kind of weird doctrine when you leave this place, uh, it's referring to foreigners, okay? Somebody that's not from your territory, not from your tribe, not from the camp of Israel. Um, if, if, if a foreigner uh, is, is sojourning or, or visiting with you, uh, or somebody maybe who's staying with you, living in your home, and they wish to make an offering by fire, a burnt offering, as a soothing aroma to the Lord, just as you do, he shall do. In other words, when you come and bring your sacrifices into the uh, outer courts, you bring your sacrifices into the temple, if they want to participate, let them do it. Let them do it. So we should involve, uh, involve our guests in worship as well. Um. Look uh, at this verse with regards to the Sabbath in Exodus chapter 20, verse 10. Exodus 20, 10, it says, uh, But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. Um, He didn't give them an option on this one. He didn't say this is if you want to. Uh, you can participate in this if you're a guest. He said, if they're a guest in your home, they must keep the Sabbath with you. So, And then the New Testament adds to this idea uh, of welcoming and involving them. It adds to, the, to this idea, the um, concept of limiting 
distractions. That's the next sub-point. We should limit distractions. Now, listen, guys, when we come into worship, and we did things a little different this morning, and it was intentional, um, I, I hope it was meaningful to you. We'll talk more about it. But, you know, when you come in, um, let, me, let me say this. I, um, I love to praise the Lord. I love to sing. I love to play the guitar. I love music. But the point of what we do up here is about Christ. And I have been in a worship service where there was somebody singing who couldn't carry a tune and couldn't stay on pitch and been so incredibly touched that I couldn't contain it. Because the spirit that's in, in, that's in this place when people are truly worshiping and truly praising the Lord is incredible. And, and it goes beyond performance. And it goes beyond how well we do. So understand, I don't care about performance for the sake of performance. But one of the things we, we try to do is we try to do what we do with excellence. And the reason we try to do it with excellence is because of this. I had a, um, an in-law who told me that uh, their kids got in really big trouble with them in the church service one time because they got up to go to the bathroom during the invitation. And, and um, I thought the guy was being a little harsh when he explained this to me. But as I reflect on it over the years, I may not have handled it the same way, but I think he was right to address it nonetheless. Because the reality is what he said is, you do not want to be the one who distracts somebody when the Holy Spirit is dealing with them. You don't want to get up in front of them and start walking around and make your way out and put their attention on you. Because at that very moment, their eternal destiny is at stake. Now, we're not responsible for that. They are. But we can be a hindrance to that. We can be a distraction. I don't know about you, but I can hold it. I can hold it long enough to make sure that somebody gets to heaven. Can you? I mean, if we get up here and we always sing out of tune or off key or we always play off the beat, how conducive is that for the worship? So we strive for excellence to limit distractions so that people aren't hindered from worship. But it's not about the performance, okay? All right, so the first thing we have to do um, again, our, our first point was we have to uh, invite others, um, welcome them, involve them, and limit distractions. Let's um, look also, oh, I forgot to share this with you. 1 Corinthians 14, 12. Um, here's, here's what uh, Paul says to the church of Corinth. So, with yourselves, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Strive to excel in building up the church. He's talking to them about the fact that this is in a discussion about the spiritual gifts, and they were having some discussion about what, what was correct, what should be done in the worship service, you know, speaking in tongues and prophesying, and this one's got a word and that one's got a word. And he says, look, you are so caught up in trying to gain an experience. Why don't you just focus on what builds up the whole group? 
Instead of seeking some greater experience for yourself, focus on the body. Focus on what builds up the church. Okay? So, um, Paul also addressed different levels of spiritual maturity. Um, there's a passage in, in uh, Romans uh, 14, and it's discussed in, in uh, I think, in, I don't remember, First or Second Corinthians as well. But anyway, there's a discussion about meat sacrificed to idols. You're familiar with this discussion, maybe? Where um, some of the, the, the believers in the day were, were a little, um, uh, they were bothered by the fact that, that people would go to the market and they'd buy this meat that had been sacrificed in, in the temples to these gods and goddesses in the Roman culture. And, and, uh, then, and then they'd, they'd take it home and eat it or, uh, or maybe serve it to other people. And, and there were some people that were getting very legalistic about some things. And they were saying, look, this meat's been sacrificed to idols and uh, Christians shouldn't eat that. They shouldn't have anything to do with that. And Paul basically comes in and says, well, look, uh, uh, reality is um, those idols aren't real gods anyway. So, you, you know, you're not, you're not in violation of anything um, because beyond that, uh, the person that, that's eating it didn't worship those gods. And it's not what goes in, and he starts talking about some of the things that Jesus said. It's not what goes into a man's mouth that makes him unclean. It's what comes out of his mouth that makes him unclean. And so he references some things like that. And he's, he's talking about this meat sacrifice to idols. And he says, look, it, it, it's really okay. Um, if it's a problem for you, then you shouldn't do it. But here's the bigger issue. Don't pass judgment on one another. And decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. Look, if it is going to offend your brother and it's going to give them, it's going to cause them to stumble spiritually, or it's going to cause them to deal with 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 judgment towards you, the better thing to do is just don't do it. Another in another place in the scripture, Paul says, "All things are permissible, but not all things are profitable." So there's so many things that aren't necessarily wrong for us to do in and of themselves. But if we know that it's a stumbling block for a weaker believer or another brother or sister in Christ, then, then we become responsible for that. And so he says, don't be a hindrance and don't pass judgment on one another. Um, and Romans, that's in Romans 14, 13. You know, this same topic comes up today in churches in this part of the country uh, with the discussion about alcohol. Right? Southern Baptists and people in the South in general, a lot of most of the Protestants in this area, you know, alcohol, drinking alcohol in any capacity is wrong. That's the mindset. Now, let me say up front, I don't drink alcohol, and um, and, and I've I've never been drunk, and I don't condone it. Um, I, I don't practice it. I, I'm not gonna. I don't want my kids to do it. I've had alcohol destroy too many people that I care about. Uh, I've had it affect too many relationships in negative ways. It's a da- it can be a very dangerous thing. But the Scripture does not prohibit the use of alcohol. It just doesn't. And, and the, there is a problem with the church, in my opinion, saying it's absolutely wrong, Don't, it, it, you can't do it, God frowns upon it, because it's not, there's not any integrity in that. That's not what the Word says. Jesus' first recorded miracle the wedding, was the wedding at Cana where he turned the water into wine. 
And as a matter of fact, it evidently was pretty good stuff because this was at the end of the celebration. And the, the guy comes to the host and says, hey, you know, um, usually everybody serves the good stuff at the beginning because by the end, people are too hammered to know the difference in what it tastes like versus the stuff at the beginning. So they serve the bad stuff at the end. But you save the best stuff for last. You're a great host. And that was the stuff that Jesus, you know, that was the miracle he performed. That was when he turned the water into wine. And so Jesus' first recorded miracle was, was turning water into wine. Also, we know that Jesus drank wine. It was a, there's a, there was a whole culture there. So it's wrong to say that, it's, that, that you shouldn't do it across the board. That there's, but, but here's the thing, guys. We are responsible for what we teach. And, and the problem is not alcohol. The problem lies with the way our culture teaches selfish and self-destructive indulgences. That's the culture we live in. And I don't think that we want to be endorsing that from the platform. And as a church, I don't think we want to be condoning and encouraging others to do that. Now, if you drink alcohol in your own home, that's your business. I'm not going to pass judgment. But if you have a problem, you need to get some help. Not everybody who drinks it has a problem. And, uh, and, and um, you need to think about the image and the, the message that you send to your kids to your family. Um, imagine this. What if, um, what if we were to serve wine, which a lot of denominations do, for our communion? And there are kids in here, or anybody under the age of 21, according to the law, is illegal to drink alcohol, and it's illegal for us to serve alcohol to anyone underage. So in my mind, there's an integrity issue there where there may not be anything wrong with drinking wine. There may not be anything wrong with serving wine for communion, However, if we have people under the age of 21 and we're giving them wine and communion, there's an integrity issue because we're violating um, the law of the land that we live in. Um, another thing is this. You never know who's in your presence that has struggled with alcoholism or who's been effective, ne- affected negatively. And if you've ever dealt with anybody who's had addictions, you know that all it takes is one taste to send them spiraling. An alcoholic, an alcoholic cannot typically handle taking even a taste of alcohol because immediately all the endorphins that rush to the brain and all the things that happen chemically and physically and mentally and emotionally, it all just stirs back up. And they get themselves, they can get themselves in a downward spiral really quick. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be... I don't want to be causing somebody to stumble in a worship service by sending them down or sending them over the edge. Now, again, am I responsible for their addiction? No. Am I responsible for uh, for for what that thing does to them, how it affects them? No. Am I responsible for how I minister to them? Yes. Yes. And, and I can't, with clear conscience, knowing the effects of alcohol in our in, in our um, culture, uh, I, I just can't, I can't personally go along with that. Um, now, uh, enough about that. The idea is that we don't want to cause a stumbling block for anyone. Second point, we need to be physically engaging and passionately expressive in our worship of Christ. Um, physically engaging and passionately expressive. Let me say something here. I, I realize that a lot of people um, are different. Not everybody is as expressive as someone else. 
Um, some people are about as expressive as a rock about everything, and that's as far as it's going to go. And you can't change that. And I realize that. And some people are off the chain one extreme or another. They're really up or they're really down, and that's going to be the way it is with everything. And I realize that. I also want to make a confession to you. I know that I personally am much more engaged and passionately expressive outwardly and, uh, and all on, on the platform when I'm leading worship than I am when I'm on the floor in the midst of the congregation. And there's, there's multiple reasons for that for me. Part of it is the fact that I'm such an analytical person. And I tend to sit in a service and, and uh, evaluate everything that's happening. And especially if I go into a service, uh, well, I mean, think about what we do and what I said about addressing distractions. If I, if I go into a service, I'm noticing, well, the, the PowerPoint was off or, um, or that person's singing flat or, oh, they do that song differently than I do it or, you know, whatever the case may be. Or, wow, there's a lot of people walking around um, not paying attention, or what, whatever it might be. My brain is thinking about all kinds of different things. But one of the main reasons that I'm so reflective when I'm in a corporate setting um, is because when I was um, in the traditional church, and um, I really struggled with my attitude, and I didn't realize that was the issue. But what happened was um, I used to pray and, or, or mumble and mutter and complain and say, God, I can't worship this way. I can't worship this way. This is horrible. The music is horrible. This is not my style, blah, 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 blah. And um, it was a little country church. Um, and one Sunday morning, I muttered that under my breath as, as there was a song going on. And uh, the Holy Spirit immediately convicted me and said, the problem is not the music. The problem is your attitude. And I, I, I kind of lost my breath for a moment and said, uh, uh, what? <laughs> and, and, um, and God let me know that the problem was not the style of music. The problem w- was my attitude. See, I had the wrong definition of worship. I defined worship as music. I defined worship as outward expression. Worship's not outward expression. It, it's an element and an indicator of true worship, can be. But it's not worship. And uh, worship is not my emotional response. It's not how I feel. Worship is an act, a, a choice. And it can be a sacrifice and it can be a joy. It can be a praise or it can be contrition, broken heart. And so the Lord convicted me and so instead of burying my nose in the hymnal and singing along, I began to say, okay, Lord, teach me how to worship. And as everybody else was singing the song, I would read the text, and I would say, okay, what does that mean? What's it saying? And then I would say, all right, Lord, teach me to do that. Teach me to think that way. Teach me to feel that way. Teach me to love you that way. Teach me to follow you that way. And I'd make it my prayer. And we sing, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. And I said, what in the world is a bulwark? So I went home, I got the dictionary, I looked up bulwark. Bulwark is a support beam on a sailing ship. So Martin Luther is saying, a mighty fortress is our God, a support in time of storm that never fails. 
And I said, ah, now I understand the text. Lord, you are a mighty fortress. Teach me to trust you as my support that never fails in the storm. And I made it my prayer. And so I understand that some people are more reflective and some people are more expressive, and that's okay. But let me tell you something. I need you to understand this. I've I got to be really honest with you. Some days, it's really hard to lead you guys in worship. Some days, it's really hard to lead in worship anywhere. Some days, it's really hard to feel like leading worship. The reality is it's easier to lead people in worship when they are more expressive and engaged. Um, when I stand up here on the platform or I stand up anywhere else, because I lead other places as well, and I've, I've done this for a long time, oftentimes I'll look out at the crowd and I'll see arms crossed. I'll see lips not moving. I'll see people standing very still, hands in their pockets, drinking their coffee. I'll see yawns. And this look on, on people's faces sometimes that says, all right, John, let me know when you're done so I can sit down. Because our tradition is that, okay, we stand for the music, and whether we sing or not, we're standing, so we're worshiping. All right, song's over. We'll sit down. All right. What's next? What you got? Bring it on. And the problem is, when we're doing that, we're not engaged. We're not engaged. We're not passionately expressive about what God has done for us. There's a problem with that. The problem could be, in some way, it could be part of um, my shortcomings as a worship leader. But I've done this a long time in a lot of different settings, and I don't think that's the main issue. I think the main issue is that the church has lost its passion. The church has lost its passion. Guys, this is, this is serious. We get passionate about all kinds of things. We get passionate about a new CD. We get passionate when our kids graduate from high school. Uh, we get passionate about getting our driver's license, about getting married. We get passionate about our favorite TV show. We get passionate about a baseball game. We get passionate about a concert. We go to a football game, and we paint our faces and our whole bodies and stand out in freezing weather, and we, and we buy stupid-looking hats and, and, and flags and foam fingers to wave in the air, and we do all this crazy stuff, and we shout, and we cheer, and we watch these little girls with pom-poms and skirts tell us to say, Give me an A! And we do all this stupid stuff. And we come in church. And we do this. The God that I serve and the God that I know, the God that saved me, the God that did a work in my life, the holy God that dwelt in the presence of His people in the tabernacle and came down in the Holy of Holies and made a way for us to enter into His presence is worthy of praise. He is worthy of glory and honor more than any athletic team, more than any sport, more than any musician, more than Michael Jackson. If you ever watch a Michael Jackson concert, you will see I know he's dead now, but if you ever watch the concerts, people are falling on their faces, screaming. 
They love Michael. Michael, Michael, Michael. What about Jesus? What about Jesus? Has he done anything for you? Has he done anything for you? If he's done something for you, you owe him some expression. And it has to start here. It has to start with what Pastor Lynn talked about two weeks ago with our attitude. With our attitude. We have a problem. We've lost our passion. And the problem, the reason we've lost our passion is because we don't know who God is anymore. We've lost sight of the God of the tabernacle. Let me share with you some expressions in Scripture of passionate, engaged worship. And I'm just going to go through a list. One is joyful singing. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Another one is bowing. Bowing in the presence of God. We talked about that two weeks ago as well. Another one is lifting hands. Another one is playing instruments or clapping or weeping. The Bible tells us that under Nehemiah's leadership, that all of Jerusalem gathered together in a public place to listen to the reading of God's law. And they stood weeping, broken over their sin at the sound of the word of God being read out loud. Shouting, shout for joy, O you heavens. Break forth in song. Dancing. King David danced before the Lord when the Ark of the Covenant was brought back into Jerusalem. He danced in the streets in celebration and worship of God. He took his clothes off and danced around in his underwear. And his wife, Michael, saw him and she talked to him later and she fussed at him and said, Oh, you were so humiliating. You embarrassed me. How can you embarrass yourself? You're the king. And he said, Hey, babe, you ain't seen nothing yet. Because I'll be more undignified than that. I will be totally shameless for my God. David danced before the Lord without shame. Guys, passionate expression, engaged in worship. It is absolutely imperative that we learn to do that. If you don't know how to do that, ask the Lord to teach you that. Ask the Lord to help you be more engaged in worship. The third thing is we need to direct our focus to Christ and the truth of God's Word. This is what I was getting at earlier. We have lost sight of the God of the tabernacle. We've lost sight of the God of the Bible. We look at Jesus and we look at God as some magic genie lots of times. If we pray the right prayer, it's like rubbing the lamp and He's going to come out and grant our wishes. If we do the right things then God's going to respond in kind to us. But the Bible tells us in many places, one of them in, uh, in, in uh, I don't know if it's 1st or 2nd Samuel, I think it's 2nd Samuel, where the prophet Samuel says, to obey is better than sacrifice. Don't go through the motions. God doesn't care about the motions. He cares about your heart. Obey is better than sacrifice. Direct the focus to Christ and the truth of God's Word. John 12, 32 says, this is what Jesus said, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. I don't know about you guys, but I have grown very weary of our church culture as, as the body of Christ as a whole. Um, 
The contemporary thing, I love contemporary music. I like what we do. But I hate the movement. Because it's not a problem with the sentiments. It's a problem with the way it's lived out. And all too often when I look at people, I look at people, you know, like the people in the video. We get our focus in all the wrong places. And, and look at this, look at this, uh, uh, the guy at the beginning. <laughs> Went to a conference. Listen, those people are real, okay? <laughs> I mean, th- th- there are people really like that. Went to a conference just a couple months ago with, with the staff or a month ago or something like that. And it was a great conference. I heard a lot of great stuff, learned a lot of great things. Um, and uh, great people, okay? But I walked around that place, and I, and I was just disgusted. Because you could tell the people who were the worship leaders and the musicians, they all looked alike. You know, they all, they all had like the Michael Jackson style hats or the um, spiky hair. I'm just kidding. Um, the hair hanging over their eyes is the thing now. Uh, hair hanging over their eyes. Skinny jeans, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and, and, and they're, they're um, you know, it's sunny and 78 degrees and they're wearing um, zipped up leather jackets with scarves around their necks, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And uh, funny looking hats. And, and, and you could tell. You could tell the people who were church planners because they all had w- real wide leather bracelets on their arms like uh, uh, Mark Driscoll and uh, wearing a black T-shirt and uh, had nice-looking teeth and, you know, that kind of thing. And um, you could tell the ones who had been in the pastoral ministry for a long time and uh, liked the, the teachings of what was going on, but they weren't necessarily fully into the contemporary thing because they walked around and they looked like my dad on summer vacation when I was a kid. You know what I'm talking about, right? It's like um, tennis shoes or sandals with uh, dress socks pulled all the way up and um, khaki shorts and a short sleeve button-up dress shirt untucked with a fanny pack. Carry all their stuff, okay? And, and uh, glasses and all that kind of stuff. All right, so, um, uh, and then you could tell, you could tell the ones who, who, um, who uh, had uh, been in ministry for a while, but they had fully, fully committed themselves to this whole contemporary thing um, because uh, they were 50 years old or older, and they looked like they shopped at the young men's section of the department store at the mall, and um, they were dressed cooler than their sons. Um. <laughs> I was r- ragging on Pastor Lynn. Um, so, <laughs> but guys, the whole the whole look thing. Listen, uh, I love Lynn. I love Lynn. He's a great guy. I'm gonna tell you something that I really, really, really appreciate about our pastor. Um, I've been around a lot of pastors. Um, It's hard. It's hard to say when you've seen some of the things in ministry that those of us who've been on the inside for a long time uh, have seen a lot of bad stuff. And it's hard to look at somebody sometimes and and, um, really feel like they're genuine. You kind of wonder about motivations. Um, I believe our pastor is genuine. I believe he's sincere. I believe he loves the Lord. And so I pick on him. I pick on him, but I really appreciate him. Is he's not afraid to say hard stuff. He's not afraid to say hard stuff. It's, it's important that we do that. Um, you know, look, Jesus didn't need all that stuff. 
Jesus didn't have a five-year plan or a, or, a, or a, you know, this is how worship ought to be done in corporate settings or this is what you, you know, how, how this should be done. Look, Jesus said this, you want to grow a church? You don't need marketing strategies. You don't need this person's program or that person's program. You don't need to do church like this church or that church. If you want, you want to grow a church, here's how you do it. Lift me up. Lift me up because I will draw all men to myself. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws him. The Holy Spirit is responsible for the results, not us. We don't need a marketing strategy. We need the Holy Spirit. If we will surrender and be obedient to God, he'll take care of the results. I don't think God wants every church to be a large church. I think think God's okay with some churches being 50, 60 people. I think God's okay with churches being 50, 60,000 people. I don't think he wants every church to be exactly the same size or wants every church to be big. Because you know what? People in different communities need different things. And God put the pastor over each church for a reason, to minister to what they needed. And he speaks to that pastor about what that congregation needs to hear from the word. I, I, don't, I don't think every church has to be 1,000 or 2,000 or 3,000. Know, but we've got this whole thing going in our minds these days that success in ministry is if we grow a big church. We've got to keep breaking the barrier for this and this and this. Who cares? Let's break the barrier of sin. Let's break the barrier of indifference. Let's break the barrier uh, in, in, uh, of strongholds in our lives and in the lives of others. Let's, let's go out and actually love people with the love of Christ and be the hands and feet of Jesus to a lost and dying world and wait and see what happens when we worship him in spirit and truth and lift him up. Wait and see what happens then. Who cares? Who cares about all that other stuff? Look at Nehemiah 9. On the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads, or dirt, and the Israelites, there was a sign of mourning. And the Israelites separated themselves from all the foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. Do you ever think we'll have a president in, in the United States who will stand up and say, look, the reason that our, our economy is so bad, the reason that uh, we have so many people in prison. The reason that the recidivism rate is so high, recidivism, people that are incarcerated go back um, to prison. Um, the, reason, the reason that, 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 that the family is breaking down, the reason we have this problem or this problem or this problem or this problem is because we've forgotten the God of Scripture. We've forgotten that He's in control and that we owe Him something. And so now, from now on, the first day of every year, we want all the people in the country to stop what they're doing at this moment in time on this day and go to their televisions or go to their churches or go to the Internet, and we're going to have a live simulcast across the country of the public reading of the Word of God. And then, after we've done that for hours, we're going to take the next several hours and we're going to pray and confess our sins publicly. And then we're going to worship and we're going to ask God to heal our land. Do you think we'll ever have a president like that? <laughs> I don't think so. 
It doesn't go well in the polls. But guys, that's what Nehemiah did. He wasn't the president, but he was the leader God appointed. He said, look, Ezra, let's read the word of God to the people. And this is what happened. All right. So if we do that, we can do this next thing. Um, Number four, the atmosphere of worship should bring us to a place of humility and awe. Psalm 33, 8, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. I don't know if you've heard of this book or not. It's a really good book. Um, it's called uh, Practicing His Presence um, by um, Brother Lawrence and Frank Laubach. I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, it's been around a while. Uh, Brother Lawrence was a Catholic monk, monk uh, I think, in uh, France maybe or something somewhere. I don't remember. Um, but uh, he kept a journal of some of the things he did uh, in his personal time with the Lord to try to practice the presence of God in a greater way. What does that mean, practice the presence of God? Um, well, the idea is this. If you're a believer in Christ, where's God? He's with you, right? The Old Testament says God inhabits the praises of his people. The New Testament tells us we're a believer in Christ. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. God is ever-present with us. And he says it's not, it's not that we're in need of being in his presence. It's that we're in need of recognizing and practicing the fact that we are in his presence. And uh, here's a quote from Brother Lawrence that really struck me. It says, uh, Lord, I am yours. Dryness does not matter nor affect me. You ever had those dry times? I have. Where you just don't feel like God's hearing you. You don't feel like he's there. Maybe he's not answering your prayers. And you're just going, okay, God, where are you? What's going on? Um, why can't I deal with this? Whatever the situation may be. And uh, Brother Lawrence says, uh, Dryness does not affect me. I'll not get my focus off of the fact that I'm yours. I belong to you. He tried to live in a place of humility and awe. Hebrews 12 says this, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. When I hear that phrase, consuming fire, I think of several passages in the Scripture. I think about uh, the prophet Elijah on Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal, where, where, where Elijah prayed and the Lord sent down fire from heaven. It consumed the offering. It consumed all of the water that was uh, poured on the offering. It consumed all of the wood. It even consumed the stones that were around the altar. A consuming fire. When I think of it, I think of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. How God visited judgment with a consuming fire. I think of, um, I think of uh, things like um, uh, the pillar of fire and the Holy of Holies that we were talking about earlier. Um, this, this is a God who's worthy of awe and reverence. Uh, a God who's powerful. A God who never has to be personal but chooses to. We should worship him in awe and reverence. Um, give you, I'm, I'm going to skip through some things because of time, but I want to give you an example. Here's Isaiah 6. Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 6 said, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. 
And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. See, Isaiah the prophet was terrified because he knew that Scripture taught no one can see the face of God and live. He knew if he saw any part of God, he must be a dead man walking. And immediately he was convicted of his sin. Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. Awe and reverence. The Apostle John in Revelation said that when he saw Christ, chapter 1, verse 17, when he saw Christ, I fell at his feet as though dead. Awe and reverence. But now, this, remember, this is the John that walked with Jesus, the beloved disciple. And listen to what Jesus said. Jesus laid his right hand on him and said, Fear not. I'm the first and the last. The one who, was, who, who died, but now I live. In other words, hey, John, it's still me. And though you should be afraid, you don't have to be. Because I love you. All in reverence. Um, let's, number five. The last thing that, that uh, authentic uh, atmosphere of corporate worship should do is it should enable the worshiper to hear the voice of God and respond. If we look at the story in Isaiah, the rest of the story, after Isaiah said, woe is me, came this part of the passage. Then one of the seraphim, the angels, flew to me, having his hand, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. That's the altar of incense. And he touched my mouth and he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. Isaiah heard from the Lord, and he responded. God actually spoke to him, just the same way that he spoke to Moses, the same way he spoke to Noah, the same way he spoke to many others, and the same way that he speaks to us if we'll listen to him. You know, I think a lot of times we feel like God doesn't speak anymore. The problem is, is, really, um, is really this. I think, I think that... Um, God speaks, we just have forgotten how to hear him. Because at some point he was speaking to us and we didn't listen. And, and so now when he speaks, we've tuned him out. Uh, we don't hear from him when we need to or when we want to because when we did hear from him, we never obeyed to begin with. I've got other passages, but I'm going to skip over them. Look, either way, it's a response of praise whether it's, a, whether it's a response of praise or a response of commitment, we have to come to worship expecting to hear from God, an expecting heart, desiring to hear from the Lord, whatever it is that he would say to us corporately and personally. And um, the writer of Hebrews knew this because in Hebrews 12 he said, see that you don't refuse him who is speaking. I wonder maybe today what, uh, what God's saying to us. Guys, I, I, I know that um, I'm past time. I know that uh, I've been talking a long time. Um, 
Here's what I want you to understand. The atmosphere of worship has nothing to do with our style. Style is a tool. Type of music, the, the this number of songs, the type of songs, the lighting, the whatever, the coffee, anything. It's all, it's all, it's all a tool. But it's not worship. The atmosphere of worship has to be about us walking that pathway from the invitation into the way, into the very presence of God. And that only happens, it only happens when we are willing to submit. We're ready to listen to God and we're focused on His truth. It's the center point of what we do. It should never be a song we sing that's not doctrinally correct. I wonder what God's saying to us today. You bow your heads with me. Um, we'll, um, we'll close out. If, if, if the Lord's saying something to you today, if maybe, maybe you've never received Christ and you want to you receive Him, um, I'm going to invite you to come and talk to Pastor Lynn or, or, or myself or someone after the service. Uh, we'd love to talk to you and pray with you. Um, if God's saying something to you today, um, don't miss it. Don't miss it. Let's respond to him. Father, we, we love you. And we thank you, Lord, for your sacrifice for us. And uh, your truth transcends style. I pray, Lord, that the atmosphere of our worship would be one infused with your Holy Spirit. One that lifts you high. One that seeks to hear from you and to obey. I pray, Lord, as we leave this place, whatever you're saying to us individually, that you would uh, confirm that in our hearts and that we would respond to you in obedience in some way before the day is out. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, as you can tell, uh, you know, the structure of the service is a little bit different. I, I think um, we're we're going to um, just close with a song, and uh, and maybe that's a good point because it gives you a lot to uh, a lot to think about as far as what worship really is, because it's not just a song. Uh, and think about what it means to honor God. The uh, picture that he had on the screen earlier and he mentioned that I've got something similar on the wall in, in my office that showed the glory cloud coming down the tabernacle I had the same thought the first time I saw that picture years ago that John kind of had you know how could you see all that how, how could you see the glory cloud come down and be as rebellious as they are and and then it was like the it was like the Holy Spirit instantly kind of told me uh, you're worse than they are because that glory cloud that you see coming down lives inside of you as a Christian and yet we rebel I ask you to bow your head I, I think John's probably just going to play something and if, if someone does uh, need Christ as their Savior we're just going to hesitate for a moment I ask the rest of you just to
kind of bow your head and pray in case someone does need Christ as their Savior. If uh, uh, if that's not the case, just you know, bow your head and pray and and ask God to help you become a better worshiper, a better um, a person who better honors Him. But heads bowed, and as we wait, as He just plays a song for a second, if there's someone here that that needs Christ as their Savior, we invite you to step out and come. People praying for you right now. If you need to do that. Listening to sermon audio from Dathan Church. If you have any questions about God, faith, or our church, email us at info at dayfreechurch.com. And for more information, find us on the web at dayfreechurch.com.